Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors and elders at Peninsula Grace here, and it's a privilege to serve you uh, by opening up the word with you this morning. But um, before we do, you know, we each, we each come in this room uh, for different reasons and different ways, feeling some of the heaviness of those old grave clothes still. So we live in this earthly, mortal body. I know a lot of us are feeling hurts coming in this room, pains, trials, different ways. Two of those I just want us to lift up together um, this morning. Um, some of you know the Henry family, Jenny and Zach. Their 18-year-old daughter, Claire, this last week was playing the piano, started feeling a numbness in her fingers. Within 24 hours, she was completely paralyzed. Um, we don't know exactly what's going on. She's in Anchorage. Tests are being done. There are some potential leads. Um, but we just want to come alongside our sweet sister and her family. Also, many of you know our brother Dave Flam. Uh, he, elder at the church here. Uh, he is heading out today to Washington. Uh, he's been diagnosed with bladder cancer over the next three months. He's going to receive some treatments and look into what the path is going forward. But for both of them, um, there's a long road ahead. So if you just pray with me as we open the word together this morning, our Father. Lord, we feel the heaviness. We bear each other's burdens. And think about what these families are feeling right now. Being scared, feeling alone. So we just want to lift them up in the name of Jesus in your throne room. You would heal where there's brokenness externally, physically, but also you guard their hearts with the peace that comes in Christ. And I know that in a room this size, there are many people who can resonate with that hurt and that pain. And so my prayer, Lord, as we open up your word, that it would do the healing power, continue us to call us out of the old grave and into new life, even in the midst of our sorrow, may we find real lasting joy in Jesus. Do your work, Spirit, through your word, for your, the Father's glory, and it's in your Son's name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John 13, so you can open those up, end of John 13, and then go through all of John 14 this morning, an overview. Um, when I, my dad was a pastor here at the church for about 12 years, that's how we got to Alaska in the first place, he took the youth pastor role here in 1985 when I was just a baby. Uh, then into the late 90s, uh, he took a job on the North Slope, he's there on the far left, from white collar to blue collar, and started doing the two-on-two shift that many of you and families here are familiar with, and that was a, a big change for our family. I remember uh, once a month driving to the airport uh, with my dad and our family, uh, hanging out in there in, in Kenai in the lounge as we waited for his plane, and I still remember it like it was yesterday. My dad bouncing me and my two young siblings on his knee, and we'd say, Papa, may we come with you? He'd say, of course not. Security would never allow that. <laughs> Plus, you're in school. That's insane, right? Um, 
No, and actually I was 12 years old, so I was not <laughs> bouncing on his knee. I was probably shaking the vending machine down the hall for free candy or something, but that first version sounded better. But seriously, like here we are saying goodbye uh, to one of the, uh, from our, 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 room, our window at the house as he was leaving, and we were sad, right? We didn't want Dad to leave. I mean, that's two long weeks. Uh, but we grew to understand that, of course, he was leaving so that he could provide a place for us a place to lay our heads, a place to dwell with him. And he would say, don't be troubled, my family, because uh, in the words of Arnold, I'll be back, right? Um, and and this is, uh, we, we see this in, in our passage today. In John 13 and 14, Jesus is beginning the process of saying goodbye to his, his apprentices, his disciples, his followers, those who have been following him every day for the last three years. And like my dad, he says, I have work to do. And it's going to be sad to say goodbye, but my work, when it's finished, will secure a place for you to lay your head with me forever. Don't be troubled. I'll be back. And, and, and this, as he's preparing these men for his departure and their task, we're entering into this, this um, portion of John's gospel called the Upper Room Discourse, uh, that Jesus is in the Last Supper, this Passover meal, uh, with his disciples. He's preparing them as, as he goes. This is kind of his locker room uh, pregame pep talk. And as he sits at the head of the Passover table, this is where the Jewish father would have sit, sat to address their family, their children. And, that, and Jesus calls these grown men his little children. Or the word, the phrase can be translated, my dear little children. These uh, were men that he had come to care for as though they were his own kids. And, and I see three things in this text today that Jesus was saying to them in the upper room that I feel like are just as prescient for us today. So let's open our, word, our Bibles and also open our hearts to hear Jesus' words. The first one is that he says, you can't come with me, dot, 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 yet. You can't come with me yet. John 13, again, uh, follow along in your own copy. If you need a copy out in the foyer, we've got some on the bookshelf. This will be in the CSB. John 13, Jesus says, little children, talking to his disciples, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus says, I'm leaving, and I think this is a reference both to he's about to leave and go die on the cross, but then after that, he's going to leave and ascend 40 days later back to the Father. And he says, you can't come but as I go, I have some parting words. And just like someone on their deathbed or about to go on a long journey, we want to lean in to their final words. We want to pay attention to what Jesus told them because this is for us too. He says in verse 34, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says, here's my command, to love one another as I've loved you. And he says this is a new command. And if you've read through the Bible, we might say, how is that new? In the Old Testament, Jesus himself says, the whole law could be summed up by love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So how is this a new command? Well, two aspects that Jesus gives here that are new. First of all, he's modeling a new standard, a new standard of love. He says here, how? Love one another as I have loved you. And he's about to show them this love, the extent of his love. As we saw last week, how? In his sacrificial death on the cross. 
This is the model for us. How do you love? You selflessly sacrifice for the sake of others. And it's also new and then it's, it's calling a new community to this love. Notice here, he says, love one another. Love one another. While my dad was on the slope, um, his children were to represent who he was and who we were as a family, how? In the way that we loved each other as siblings. Now, we did not always represent him well, right? But nonetheless, that's how we showed the world who our dad was and his love for us is in the way we loved each other. Jesus says here, everyone will know you're my disciples. How? By the love you have for one another. This new covenant community called the church, he's telling them to love one another. And then Peter, as always, starts speaking before he thinks. Verse 36, Lord, Simon Peter said, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But interestingly, look at what he says, but you will follow later. You will follow later. Peter wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says you can't. Now, in some ways, like literally, he won't be able to be up on the cross with him. Certainly, Peter can't bear the weight of the world's sins as the Lamb of God like Jesus is going to. So he can't be who Jesus is going to be. But notice he says, you will follow me later. Peter, you're not going to die yet. But later on, Peter is going to die. Now, not as a second lamb for the sake of the world, but he is going to follow Jesus in the way that he lives, proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is, and in the way that he dies. In the last chapter in this gospel, Jesus says that, that he is going to die like Jesus dies, crucified, as, well, as we know in church history, for pro- proclaiming the gospel. But then, after his death, he is going to follow Jesus into glory in the presence of the Father. So what a word back to Peter. And then Peter gets all melodramatic. Verse 37, Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So he says, I'll die for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, let's chat in 24 hours, rooster boy, right? Jesus says, you're going to lay down your life for me? No, 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 no. I am going to lay down my life for you, Peter. Peter's showing the ignorance um, of his own weakness, and I think a bit of arrogance here. And I think it's easy at the table to be all white knight, right? To play the part of the hero as we're sitting around with his friends, there's candlelight, things are good, but that light's about to go out. And he's about to go into a dark garden surrounded by Roman soldiers trained to kill. And then that super scary servant girl at the fireside, right? And and what Jesus says here is going to be true. He denies that he even knows Jesus. Like Peter, you and I can't follow Jesus on our own. He He threw down the requirement to love one another as I have loved you. This is the standard. And I love what D.A. Carson says. He says, this new command to love one another is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate. And yet it's profound enough for the most mature believers. uh, That the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they can comprehend it. And, most importantly, actually put it into practice. You think about this. As sinners... It is impossible to love like Jesus loves. To truly, sacrificially, selflessly, from the heart, without fail, love somebody else. 
mean, try that for five minutes, and, and you, you know what I'm talking about. And therefore, it's impossible for any of us to follow Jesus in his way and into the loving, glorious relationship with the Father. And I think about my life, like, it's easy to do some of the big magnanimous things. Like, I could jump in front of a train or a bad guy for my wife, my daughter, right? That's a, that's a relatively easy decision to make in the moment. But what about the daily, selflessly, denying self and thinking about another, even the people I like, right? To put their needs, preference, before my own. I hear a crow, a, a, a rooster in the background crowing, right? It, it's one thing for us to sit here in the, in the, the warmth of a building, as it's 20 below outside, and say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, I'll, I'll do that. And then we go a step out into the darkness, into the hard things. Before you know it, we hear the rooster. How many cock-a-doodle-doos do I need to remind me I cannot love like Jesus? I cannot follow Jesus in my own strength. So how can Peter follow Jesus if that is the call? He wouldn't call us to something that's impossible, right? How can Peter do it? How can we do it? That's what Jesus speaks to next. A way to join me will be provided. A way to join me will be provided. I remember my dad's selflessness, my brother here helping him get ready. Uh, the night before he was going to the slope, my dad wasn't like, all right, I'm going out with the boys, right? What, what was he doing on his last night? He'd come to our basketball games. He'd come to our like elementary band performance and plug his ears through hot cross messy buns, right? He would lay there on the, the living room floor and play whatever game we liked and he pretended to like, right? Like that our dad was with us on that last night, thinking of us, not himself. Man, the incredible love of Jesus here. Like he knows that he's the one that's about to be tortured and killed. And yet what does he do with his final night? He comforts and instructs his dear little children. Verse 14, chapter 14, the first verse here, he says, do not, be, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus is always washing the feet of those around him. What a savior. What an example to us. And what he says here, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe or trust, maybe your translation says. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He says, trust my father. Trust me. And you're going to need to trust us because what is about to happen is hard. He's not saying don't be troubled because it's going to be easy street. And he knows not just what he's going to face, but what his followers are about to face in the coming days, weeks, and years in their lives. But he says, don't be troubled because what's about to happen, what I'm about to do, is to your advantage. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. So what does this mean? He says to prepare a place for them. I think we need to unpack some assumptions that we've kind of handed down with some of this language here. Jesus is not saying he's like some heavenly housemaid up there to fluff the pillows for us and as, as he waits. He's also not like a divine uh, Chip and Joanna uh, do, making this nice place, the big reveal, pull the thing back. I can't believe you made that, All right? Like that's not, that's not what he's referencing here. I think the KJV, unfortunately, translates, I prepared many rooms for you as mansions. And so that's what we're thinking, right? We're thinking he's up there working on a Downton Abbey uh, for us. 
And, and, for, and, and you know, we, if you're from the 90s, like, you know we've built this into our song, songs, right? It's a big, big house, lots and lots of rooms. Yeah, so we'll touch down, football. Which also, by the way, is why I think we have such a big service here at the 9 a.m. Go Chiefs. I'm on to you. I'm on to you. But in John's gospel, the Father's house is actually a reference, first and foremost, uh, to the Jewish temple. This was the meeting place of God and man. Uh, and, and, and Jesus shows us in John's gospel that he is the ultimate reality of the temple. The temple was just a structure to point toward the, re the reality of Jesus. That Jesus himself is to become the meeting place of God and man. And so what he's saying is this permanent place that I am going to prepare for you is not just a, a building, it's me. A permanent relationship with the Father through the Son. And, and Jesus here, he, he, how does he prepare this place? We're about to see it. By his very act of dying, resurrecting, and then ascending back to the Father, he's preparing ample room for every single person who believes in that very act that he accomplishes. Jesus tears the curtain of the temple in two, throws down the welcome mat, and says, there's a place for you and me. And he's confirming here in what he says uh, that he is the way, right? And, and you, this is the most famous part of this passage. So he says, you know the way to where I'm going. Lord, verse 5, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way to where you're going? Fair question. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this is the sixth of seven I am statements. We'll hear the last one next week that Jesus says in this gospel. And notice when he says, I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he, he is not saying um, that he's just bla blazing a trail to show us the way. He says, I myself am the way. His death and resurrection themselves will be a path, a, a path to what? Not just a cool mansion, although there is a physical reality coming in the new heavens and new earth, so we very well will be living in some physical structure. But the point is way better than that. The point is that he's inviting us into the place of intimate union and fellowship with the very God that we've been singing to this morning. Provides the way. And then, jump down to verse 12. He says, I, I truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. So he says, Greater works. Now, we might hear that and go, I'm doing greater works than Jesus? Like, what does that mean? And we might think of that in just more spectacular. Jesus cast out three demons. We're casting out nine. Jesus was raising Lazarus. We're going to raise people that are taller than Lazarus. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever is more spectacular and better, right? But this word in the Greek, it, the phrase doesn't necessarily just mean, like, greater and the more spectacular, but to do more or continue these works. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're going to continue what I started. And we see this in the immediate context, because why does he say? He says, because I am going to the Father. Jesus is about to depart from the planet, right? He's about to ascend back to his Father, 
But he says, I'm leaving you here to continue the works that I've started here. You are going to be my ambassadors here on earth. And in verse 15, he says what this work is. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So Jesus has shown his love for the Father by keeping his commandments. And we are going to continue the good work by trusting our Father and keeping his commandment to do what? He just told us in the last chapter. Love one another as I have loved you. This is not Jesus' work versus our works. This is Jesus' continued work done in and through us. Now, how does that work? Well, he, he points us to the, to the power of this in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So how do we go out and do what he commanded us to do to love one another? We hang on to our lifeline. Through prayer, we say, God, would, would, you, would your Son love through us as he continues to do these greater works in us? And he will answer. Jesus is no longer limited to one earthly body. He's multiplying himself and his disciples. And now he sends us out to do these greater continued works of proclaiming the gospel. And, and, but to do this work that he's left us with. Right? He, he doesn't leave us on our own. He gives us two gifts. And that's the last point we see this morning. I leave you with two gifts for the journey. Two gifts. When my dad left for the slope, he didn't completely abandon us. Right? He would call every single night almost every single night, and we talked to him. And 70 below up there, Dad? That's crazy. So if, if you think this is bad, just remember, there's a slope worker who has it colder than you do, right? <laughs> and he left us with a comforter, a counselor, right? As, as my mom and dad are one flesh, like in a very real way, and my mom, our, his presence was here still with us. That team that was parenting us, and she was there in our midst to comfort us and, and spank us and, you know... <laughs> All the good things that a mother does. Jesus didn't abandon us either. He did not abandon his followers. He says, I'm leaving you with something to comfort you, to engage with you, talk with you, and walk with you every single day. A gift that you need. You cannot do this mission without. Look at what he talks about. It's actually not a what, it's a who. Verse 16. I will ask, Jesus says, the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Praise the Lord. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. He says, I'm going to send you this counselor, comforter. Your translation might say advocate. And then he refers to him as the spirit of truth. And if you look down at verse 26, he calls him the Holy Spirit. We know this to be the third person of the Trinity that he's talking about. The Holy Spirit will be gifted to us. And two gifts that we receive through this Holy Spirit. The first one is the very presence of Jesus. We see the presence of Jesus in two ways in Jesus' teaching here. First of all, we'll feel his presence through the love that we love with uh, through the power of the Spirit. Look down at verse 21. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. So he says, one of the ways you're going to experience my presence through the Spirit is in obeying this command to love. I think sometimes the dry and empty seasons that we feel in our lives are simply 
a refusal to obey this command of loving other people. John Mark Homer said, to experience, oh, there's verse 21, uh, to experience the life of Jesus, which we want, right? We want to experience his life. He says, we must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. In other words, to be with Jesus is to walk on the path that he walks, right? If I'm on a different path, not loving, and he's loving, we're, we're not with one another in that way. And, and here's the beautiful promise. He says, if you love like this, I will love you and reveal myself to you. So you think about this, like the way to see Jesus' glory, his beauty, experience that in, in his presence with us in and through our own lives is to love like Jesus loves. It's actually the, the best thing for me is to take my eyes off myself and put them on the people around me just like Jesus did. For Jesus' love, his presence to be made, made visible in our lives, it's through the daily sacrificial, usually completely unnoticed act of loving. When you're patient with that annoying coworker, bam, the presence of Jesus is manifested. When you're putting your spouse, spouse's need, your children's need, a loved one's needs before your own, when you show up to your small group to love one another when you could have just as easily sat at home and binged Netflix, when, when you when you give the first part of your paycheck to a family in need versus just getting the newest iPhone. These little tiny acts that, again, most people won't even know happened. Jesus is revealing himself through you. We'll experience the presence of Jesus as we walk in his way. The other way we experience his presence, though, in our life is through his spirit. He talks about, again about the spirit here down in verse 25. He says, I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all these things and remind you of everything I have told you. See, we're not left to try to love on our own. It's the Spirit who's going to teach us how to do this and give us the power to walk in this. Jesus has told them of his love for them, of their permanent place before the Father in him. But these disciples, and I can totally track with this, are shown to be, have a, a tendency to wander, to be prone to wander away and forget what Jesus has said is true of us in him. How prone am I, and, and, and probably many of you can relate to this, to listen to the lies being whispered into my ears and to drift back into places of self-protection and fear, to be troubled at heart. He says, the Spirit's here to remind you and teach you. And I want to underline, the Spirit that he's talking about is a person. He's not just some, like, force, like, a Star Wars thing going on in us. He, he's not just a, a warm blanket, right? He's, and he's not just a teleprompter, like, showing us the truth to remind us. He is a person, a person who's with us, a person who's speaking this truth to us, teaching us, giving us the power and instruction and ability to actually walk this love out that Jesus has called us into. And one of the ways that we can see the person of the Spirit enacted in our lives is embodied in the body of Christ, right? I am not the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And one of the sweetest ways, every, every Thursday morning I meet together with a couple of guys and we call it a discipleship triangle. And we sit there and embody the presence of Jesus' Spirit to one another. We remind each other of truth. And it's not just information, because I don't need those guys for the information. I have a Bible. 
But it's as we sit down at coffee or in the living room and we laugh and we cry and we smile and we speak truth to one another. We experience the embodied presence of the spirit of truth pointing each other back to our Jesus. The first gift he gives us is the presence of himself and his spirit. The second thing that comes with that through the spirit is his peace. So um, he says here in verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you. Now this word peace, so they were, they were speaking in Aramaic, translated into Greek, but in the Hebrew culture and in their Bibles, they, it was still Hebrew language. And in Hebrew, the word shalom is a hello and it's a goodbye. Right? Just like the word aloha for the Hawaiians and our friends that are down there right now that we're not jealous of at all. Right? <laughs> and so he says, peace I leave with you. This is a goodbye. But this exact same expression is also a hello. And in just a few days, he's going to say it again, but after he had risen from the dead. And three times in John, we hear him say the same phrase, peace be with you. Because the very peace of God is resurrected and is standing in their midst. It's not a goodbye, it's a hello. When Jesus says goodbye here, there's actually a play on words. Because notice he says, peace I leave with you. That's the Hebrew way of saying goodbye. But then he says, my peace I give to you. So the gift here that they needed, that we need today, through his spirit... And we so desperately need for the road of toil ahead is the very peace of God in our lives. But he says, notice here, continue verse 27, my peace I give to you, I do not give it to you as the world gives. He says, this is not a, the, the peace of the world. The world gives a peace that does not have love. Uh, in in the, the day, in that time, one of the common expressions was Pax Romana, meant the Roman way of peace. And how were the Romans achieving peace? Well, that was by the sword, by taking out their enemy and just being one homogenous society that did it the Roman way. So that was the, the Roman route to peace. And he says, I don't give peace the way the world gives peace. Because remember, that's how many of his people imagined the Messiah would bring peace. And he says, that's not how I do it. I don't, the world secures peace by browbeating the other side. And maybe that's an actual sword. Maybe that's words. But a worldly way of achieving peace is winning. But part of that language there itself shows you the self-defeating nature of the other side. But the other way that the world gives peace is just by ignoring the issue altogether. We're just going to ignore it. But as it's been said, true peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's the actual presence of justice. The world's attempts, all of the world's attempts fail at peace. Why? Because the world doesn't get down to the root level of the problem of strife in the first place. Only Jesus can give true peace because only Jesus knew how to deal with the actual problem, which was our sin that separated us from our God. And so Jesus gave peace, not by browbeating the other side, but by having his own brow beaten. Jesus brought peace, not by ignoring the issue. He didn't say, oh, it's cool, just come to my father. Like he'll... No, we had to deal with sin. He addressed our sin issue head on by taking it on his own head. He achieved peace. And, and there's one day that our, the Prince of Peace is going to come back. There's a day that we look forward to today with hope. That every square inch of this world is going to be ruled by the Prince of Peace. But here, even in the moment, as we wait for that, even inwardly, we can experience through the presence of his spirit in us, a peace that passes our understanding. 
He doesn't give the way the world does. Jesus gives it paradoxically. He gives it in a way that at first doesn't feel like love, doesn't seem like love. Look at his words. Continue on in verse 27. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. Then he says, you have heard me tell you I am going away and then I'm coming to you. I'll be back. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Now, this is interesting. He says, if you knew, like, if you realize I'm about to go into the presence of my Father, you would be rejoicing for me. But, but this indicates in, in, in their hearts, this grief that they're experiencing reminds us of some of the immaturity of that self-centeredness in love. See, a mature love finds joy in the good of another. If they were only thinking about Jesus in this moment, they would have been joyful because he knew what was his afterword on the other side of the cross. But also, inseparably from that, this is also for their good too, right? Because he said, I'm going to come back. Me going to the Father is ultimately the way for you to come home as well. Jesus' glory and our good are always inseparable. Now, does it mean, like, is it bad for them? Is that wrong for them to be sad and grieve that Jesus is leaving? Is it wrong for us to grieve uh, someone who's moving away or, you know, a loved one who has died, even if we know that they're at home in presence with the Lord? Well, no. Jesus himself, we see, is grieved and troubled at his own um, upcoming death, right? But what Jesus, what Jesus shows us, models for us, is he takes that troubled heart, he takes that grief, and he leans farther into trust and obedience of his father, not away from it. See, a mature love that Jesus is showing takes our grief to God. It leans into him. It doesn't pull away. It doesn't run away. It, it presses in. And that's our struggle, to trust our God. And when things are hard, to lean in. We're still learning in process, right? Jesus alone models a perfect, joyful peace in his Father's will. No matter, and he's going to be troubled, right? He's, cry, he's crying in the garden, sweat of blood. Like, Father, is there any way around? Take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. He had peace even in the midst of unfathomable sorrow. So how do we receive this peace that Jesus shows us here? Well, this takes us to the heart of the gospel. Look at verse 29. I've told you, he says, now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. Jesus says, I want to I predict, I want you to know that I know what's coming. So when it happens, you see me on the cross, you see the empty tomb, you see me departing to go be with the Father, and it all comes together that you see and you believe who I am and what I've accomplished. And John, throughout all of his gospel, has been writing all of these things about Jesus, his teaching and his example, so that we would believe this Jesus and find life. But then he, he goes on in verse 30. He says, I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. Amen. Hallelujah. Like, he says the ruler's coming. Coming to do what? Through Judas, he's going to betray him, and he's going to kill him. But he says, Satan actually here, it's going to sure look like Satan has power. It's sure going to look like Satan won. But Satan could only have a hold on Jesus. Satan could only have power over Jesus if he was justified in killing Jesus. If there was something that Jesus had done that deserved death. That would spell victory for Satan, right? But we know Jesus was an innocent man. And why did he die? 
not because Satan was stronger than him. He tells us why in verse 31. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do as the Father commands. That the only thing that puts me on that cross is my unswerving trust and obedience in my Father's heart for me. His love for me that I reciprocate back to him in this surrender and sacrificial act of dying on the cross for the good of the world and the glory of my Father. That's what puts me on this cross. Not losing to Satan. This is love conquering all. And Jesus, in this way, this supreme act of love, he shows us the only way to true life. This phrase, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, could also be translated, I am the way to true life. The only way to real living with intimacy with God is through the person of Jesus himself. And we see in this passage Jesus showing he's our, he's our model, right? He shows us what a love that trusts the Father with our very lives looks like, with death in right in front of us. But he also is our access, because we couldn't, we couldn't just follow his model. So Jesus had to be perfect on our behalf, and he had to re- receive our imperfections on the cross. And in that, and in that alone, is there an invitation, an access into the Father's love. And Jesus is our ability. Jesus is the only way we can live this out. To obey his command to love others the way he loved us is impossible without his peaceful presence, his spirit in us, teaching us, enabling us to do this thing. You know, when my dad would uh, hug me goodbye at the airport, uh, there was this peace that I had, even as a kid. And, and the peace didn't come from knowing, well, he's about to make you know, a lot of money on that slope. And he's going to give me a bigger house and better food and cool clothes, that puffy yellow vest that I want that's very much putting me in the late 90s. My peace came from knowing he was my father. And that even in his two-week absence, he would continue to be my father. That he would not stop loving me and that he was going to come back. It was the permanent nature of our relationship that gave me peace. I wasn't afraid that he'd go to the slope and be like, I don't even, do I have kids, right? And maybe I'll find a better son up here, one that's hips actually work. Oh, I'm real impressed. <laughs> but we also know that every human father and mother and person like, is a finite, sinful human being. My father couldn't be ultimate peace for me. There's only one who could. And it's only in Christ and his finished work on the cross that we can be granted, listen, permanent adoption before our Father. The one who loves us and will be faithful to never stop loving, never stop protecting, never stop providing for us. And we can be anchored in that permanent sonship and daughtership with him only through the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what he said just a few chapters earlier. Jesus taught a slave doesn't remain in the household forever, right? They do a job and then they're dismissed. But he said a son does. A son remains forever. Brothers and sisters, we were, we were slaves to sin. We needed rescue, right? We were orphans, as we just sang. But now we've been adopted. And we are loved and secure in that father's love forever. 
And, and, and he's going to say, this is what John says when he's writing some epistles to some churches a little while later. He says, see what great love the Father has given to us that we should be called his children, not his slaves, his children. And that's what we are. And the reason that he gave us the Spirit to remind us of this truth is because there are going to be moments of doubt. And maybe you haven't experienced this in a major way. You will. Like we're all going to go through a time. Maybe it's a certain pain, a certain trial that's going to cause us to doubt if there is a God at all. And if there is a God, how this could be a loving God to allow this to happen. Or we're going to go through some sin that we just keep, like just keeps beating us up and we can't seem to get past it and start questioning our own salvation and our place before the Father. This is why Jesus knew we, we needed the Spirit because in those moments, we need something inside of us, out, outside of our own selves, to whisper the truth. When, when Satan tempts us to despair and points us to the guilt within, we need somebody. We need a person to lift up our chin and say, don't forget, the tomb is empty. Like Jesus is alive, and because he's alive, you have permanent access before your heavenly Father, who will never leave you nor forsake you. I remember the joyful moment and coming to pick up my dad a couple weeks later. He's home. My dad's home. There's a day coming. There's a day coming that is more infinitely joyful when Jesus is going to come back. We're going to get a look at him face and face, guys. Like We're going to look into the face of Jesus. Think about that for a second. And our eyes are going to be filled with tears. His eyes are going to be filled with tears. He's going to run to us, and he's going to embrace us and say, Aloha, shalom, peace is with you. I am with you, and I'm never going anywhere again. But until then, we don't just sit by idly watching the clock. We have greater works of Jesus's to continue to do. He has temporarily left us, but he has not abandoned us. He's given us the gift of his peaceful presence, the spirit in us, teaching us, reminding us of our permanent place as the children of God. And out of that place of rest, and only out of that place of rest, can we self-sacrificially love one another in this room to show the watching world that we are his disciples and to invite that world with us to journey on the way that Jesus has prepared for us. Father God, even right now, the only reason I can talk to you is because Jesus ripped open that curtain. I am your son, now and forever, because of what Jesus, the good work he did on my behalf. And Father, uh, there's too many people in this room to even start to imagine where each of them are at. But we know that you are faithful to use your word and your spirit, so I just pray that you would take this truth and attach it to the places that need to be attached, that your spirit would lift the chin, point the eyes to Jesus and who he is for them, that they would, through your spirit, be able to experience the peace that knows there is no condemnation in Christ for any of the sins we've committed. There is no trial that is greater than the one who has overcome the world. Would you anchor us in our permanent adoption before the Father? And out of that place, we put our eyes on truth, that our response 
as we sing this song, would just be to praise the one who made the way, who is the way. We pray this in the name of the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus, and Jesus alone. All God's people said.